already read a book. <laughs> we just love history. Yeah. He definitely was like, nah, man, call me Chuck. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Where are your guys' bells? You need more bells. <laughs> you ever heard of July 2nd? <laughs> Real quick, another baby. And then I'm out of here. Very quickly, make another child. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to the Presequential Podcast. Tonight's episode is number two on John Adams. We are calling it The Voice. We're very excited that you are joining us. This is the podcast where we go from one to 45 in under 90, discussing every president's life, legacy, and some little-known facts. My name is Ryan Allward. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend Blaine Zimmerman. Blaine, how you doing tonight, man? Fantastic. Thanks for asking. You're very welcome. What are we sipping on tonight? We always try to enjoy a libation while we're doing this that is somewhat coinciding with the president that we're talking about. What are we What are we sipping on tonight? So tonight, we decided to go with Strongbow, which, for those uninitiated, is a hard apple cider. And we did that for a reason, because John Adams, you could say, was a fan of apple cider. He drank at least one every morning for breakfast. <laughs> Like he invented brunch. (laughs) (laughs) I did not read that in the book. Yeah. Uh, He loved a strong cider. Mm, Just wake up and get going. Yeah. Like wasn't a big mead guy Mm. or Madeira. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wasn't a beer guy, even though, you know, Sam Adams. Oh, yeah. Which he's related to. He was his uh, second cousin, Sam Adams was. Um, So that was on the table uh, for tonight. It could have potentially been Sam Adams, but... It just made more sense. Mm -hmm. Like, why wouldn't we, to get in the mind Mm -hmm. of John Adams, Mm -hmm. you have to get to the blood alcohol content of blood John Adams. (laughs) By six in the morning. (laughs) He was an early riser. The guy got up at like five o'clock and just started drinking hard cider. So, well, cheers to you, Blaine. And cheers to you, listener. Thank you for joining us. We're excited about tonight. If you're a first-time listener to the Presequential Podcast, Blaine and I have decided to read one biography about every American president in chronological order. For this one, you can't really go anywhere else besides David McCullough's amazing biography, Pulitzer Prize-winning biography on John John Adams. Written in 2001 and 651 pages. So by my quick math, we are at 1484. Wow. All right. John Adams came from a long line of New England farmers, shoemakers, and maltsters, which when I was reading, I had no idea what a maltster was, but it's someone who prepares malt and barley for the brewing of beer. He was born in Braintree, Massachusetts on October 30th, 1735. He was a sixth generation American. His ancestors had landed in Massachusetts in 1638 as part of the Puritan migration from England. Yeah. So his ancestors, and by the way, there's a really interesting full-on family tree of John Adams at the beginning of this book, which makes it a little easier. His grandparents or great-grandparents were the ones that moved. Yes. So they were some of the original dissenters of the Church of England. That's right. So like, he's a true OG. Like, they were like up there with Martin Luther, like, you need some nails? We can give you some nails. We got a lot here. Yeah. Revolutions in his blood. Yes, absolutely. Patriotism, McCullough says, burned in him like a blue flame. This is Adam's words here, quote, I have a zeal at my heart for my country and her friends, which I cannot smother or conceal, end quote. He also had a zeal for the heart of his father. However, probably took some more traits from his mother than his father. His seriousness, his probably his ambition and drive. He was a little bit more like his mother. He was second cousins with Patriot Samuel Adams, Mm -hmm. which side note, you can drink a Sam Adams beer across the street in Boston from where Sam Adams is buried. I've done it and it's really fun. That's cool. You can see his grave. I wish I would have known that when I was there. What were you doing? I was joking. I believe it's a yog. (laughs) John Adams was lively very widely read. He could talk on almost any subject, highly valued his reputation, and often got down on himself about how uh, vain he could be. Yeah, which, okay, highly valued his reputation, by most accounts, had a terrible reputation. (laughs) Like, I I say that, and we'll get to kind of like my thoughts later, kind of as we do, but he did not care. He was like, I know I'm smart. Yeah. Like there was a time where he was up for a reelection and he didn't even show up for the vote because he was like, who's running against me? Like, right. I'm clearly more qualified. Like, what's the point? Not considering that's not how politics works. Nope. Sorry. So I think part of it was he grew up in a family that valued education, that valued reading, that valued scripture, spiritual endeavors. Yep. And he knew 
where he landed on things. Definitely didn't fall into the sense of humility that we covered with Washington. Mm -hmm. Basically, he couldn't help himself to be like, no, 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 like I'm smarter than you. Yes. Which it came in handy. Like he helped write the Constitution. That's a kind of a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) When we get there, mm, I'll say that's You're ready. Yeah. You put a pin in that. Yeah. Uh, In 1755, John Adams graduates from Harvard which was not the Harvard as it is now. It was a much smaller school and becomes a schoolmaster before going into law about three years later in 1758. In 1764, he marries his third cousin, Abigail Smith, the daughter of a parson from nearby Weymouth, Massachusetts, with whom he would raise six children, four of whom would survive into adulthood. Uh, not uncommon, the cousin thing at the time. Yeah. I don't know if that makes it okay, but... A little little different. Yeah. A little odd. But they also still married for status. Yes. For those types of reasons. Well, it wasn't arranged. Kind of what we covered with Washington, understanding how the game worked and marrying up. He knew, like, I have to marry somebody from a family equal or higher than me. And Abigail Smith fit that bill. The one thing I also wanted to cover about 1764 was the smallpox epidemic. He was a pro-vaxxer. He actually got the smallpox inoculation. Yes. And just because they didn't know a ton about medicine at the time, Abigail would smoke her letters to decontaminate them before sending them. I did not know that. Yeah. Was that in the same book that I read? It's, uh, did you read the McCullough? I did. Yeah, oh, it was in that one. I read it upside down. <laughs> Blaine, what happened on March 5th, 1770 in Boston? Ooh, the poorly named Boston Massacre. <laughs> That's right. Three, or the incident on King Street, as it was known to the British. It became known as the Boston Massacre. Five Americans were killed by some British sentries. It did not go well for the British that night, nor did it go well for the five Americans that were killed. The first of whom, Crispus Attucks, was the first black black man killed in the American Revolution. But John did a very interesting thing the day after. No one else was going to take this case. And John, without hesitation, knowing full well the risk that it was going to be for his career, his reputation, potentially his safety and his family's safety, took the case and uh, accepted the opportunity to defend the eight British soldiers that were on trial, six of whom he got acquitted. Famously, because of facts. Because as John says, facts are stubborn things. I found that really interesting. And I think that was a pretty good look into his character that kind of gets magnified even more from his son later. Like you can tell that that was something he impressed upon his son. As John Quincy. Right. As we'll learn, spoiler alert, in episode (laughs) six. But he did, while I think that was part of the the reason he had such a bad reputation, was he looked at things from a, I guess, intellectual standpoint and said, well, they deserve representation. Yep. Nobody else is going to do it. I'll do it. And then when he looked at the facts, he was like, look, they were there. These people were throwing rocks and stuff at him. When they attacked, they shot him. He cared that much about the purity of the law. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did he want the British to be there? No. No. Did he think that what they were doing was good? Absolutely not. But he understood that the law is a sacred thing to him and that you have to follow the rules. Yes. And that you have to present the facts as they are real because they're facts and they're stubborn. It's pretty fascinating that one of our founding fathers represented British soldiers in the event that kicked off the revolution. Yeah. In 1774 and 75, Adams then goes to be in the First and Second Continental Congress. He was a very important figure in drafting the Declaration of Independence, though he deferred a lot to Jefferson to write it. He essentially was like, Jefferson, you should write it. And Jefferson was like, nah, fam, you write it. (laughs) And Adams is like, I shouldn't write it. Mm -mm, Not me. And Jefferson, and this is the part I'll quote directly, Jefferson said, why shouldn't you write it? Adams' response, because... reasons (laughs) reasons <laughs> because reason. that was his response oh man and then jefferson said which reasons and his reasons in a nutshell were people don't like me you're from virginia true and that's it and that's jefferson right. was like both solid points all right <laughs> i agree <laughs> that was the whole argument it was fantastic so this is a really neat story that mccullough unpacks in the book july 1st 1776 skipping uh, i'm skipping ahead a couple years it's a very stormy summer morning in philadelphia and adams right Rises in the State House of Philadelphia to deliver the most powerful and important speech of his life, calling for American independence. Says, quote, objects of the most stupendous magnitude, measures in which the lives and liberties of millions, born and unborn, are 
most essentially interested are now before us. We are in the very midst of revolution, the most complete, unexpected, and remarkable of any in the history of the world, end quote. A debate lasts nine hours, and a final vote was postponed until the next day, July 2nd. This was really interesting, too, that that night, a hundred British ships start sailing into New York Harbor, which was a prelude to the 400 ships that were going to come in a little bit later. Adams actually thought that July 2nd was going to be the one that was celebrated for posterity. Yeah. I'm going to take a sip from my Strongbow Cider. You unpack what happened. The thing that I thought was interesting about this quote was that he straight up predicted how we would celebrate the 4th of July. Yes. Now, do we celebrate the 4th of July because he said it that way? Or did he predict how we would celebrate it later? I don't know. But that's interesting. He also thought that it was going to happen on July 2nd, not yes. having the foresight of knowing that it wasn't going to be signed until the 4th. Correct. And that we would see it on the 4th every year. But he said, yes. the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoca, epoca, uh, e- epoch, e- epoch, E-P-O-C-H-A. Okay. All right. In the history of America, I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Okay, that part he got wrong. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. The whole time I was reading that, I was imagining the 4th of July scene in the Sandlot. <laughs> it's a great movie. Like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Ray Charles singing in the yeah, background. They're going through the neighborhood potluck, and yeah. they go play night baseball. Yeah, it's in slow-mo. Oh, oh, I love, I love that he includes bells in there. Next 4th of July party. Like, the one thing we yeah, still do is all be like, all right, let's take a moment. Praise, praise be the Almighty. Yeah. Like, I mean, some people do. And someone gets their bells out. Yeah. Just a handbell choir. Like, most of it's just like, let's grab my United States handkerchief and jean shorts see what we can blow up. Yeah. Yeah. So in September 1776, several months later after the signing of the declaration, John Adams becomes bed buddies on a trip with Ben Franklin. This was funny. So they're en route from Philly to Staten Island to negotiate with the British. And they're trying to end the revolution. Okay. It, spoiler alert. It only lasts a couple hours. It does not succeed. Okay. So during the stop en route in New Brunswick, New Jersey, the two of them had to share a bit. Quarters were, were limited that night and they grumbled with one another in the words of Lionel Richie, all night long to figure out if we're going to keep a window open or not. Do you remember why Franklin wanted the window open? Franklin was probably right. Franklin was convinced that the reason people were getting sick so often Mm -hmm. was because they were in these cramped quarters with no fresh air and they were all like broke because, you know, they had 17 kids and they were in like six rooms. Adams was like, I'm afraid of the evening air. And... <laughs> Franklin was like, uh, you should be way more afraid of the air in here if we keep the window closed. Wow. Like, cause we'll probably both die. Yeah. The foresight of that, I mean, he's like, look, man, be cold or die. But he wasn't wrong. Like, he wasn't. It really is how people get sick. Yeah. He's like, bro, this is the 18th century. Yeah. We gotta I mean, keep the window open. Franklin, he was on something. More people might have, should have listened to him. Should have. One month later, October 1st of 1776, Adams proposed, this is really neat, the creation of a military academy. So nothing came of it until after the war, but it was the first such proposal made. So technically, Adams can be called the father of the U.S. military academy at West Point. Which is pretty neat. This is also where we caught... Um, Go ahead. I was going to say Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the villainous traitor. Benedict Arnold. <laughs> he, was, he was finally found out at yes. West Point. Yeah. He was. Yes. He was trying to sell it to the British. <laughs> so, you know, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, going ahead a couple of years. In February and April of 1778, he's sailing from Boston to France with his son, John Quincy, in this frigate that they're on is struck by lightning. They come into conflict with a British ship called the Martha. And this was neat. There was a scuffle on deck and the captain of the ship looks over to see John Adams with a musket in his hand defending this American vessel. He's like, uh, sorry, what are you doing? (laughs) He's like, you're not a sailor. You're the guy that I'm sworn to protect to make sure he gets over to France. Okay. What are you doing? And he basically says, I'm here to defend. I'm here to fight. I'm here to protect my country, which I did not know about John Adams. It's one thing to say that you're patriotic, but to actually show up and say, hey, if there's a fight I'm going into it, it's a totally different thing. This was not the trip he took with his son, correct? This was before that? Uh, he took, I believe he took two trips. This is the one trip was that with, he didn't have to go on. 
That's right. Yeah. Yes. But he got there and they were like, yeah, we already signed the treaty, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why you could have told me? Yeah. Yeah. This is the first one that he took John Quincy. The second one, he took him again, but he also took his younger son, Charles. So, oh, so this was the one that had all the storms? Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. So the fascinating thing about the storms. Yeah. He rode every day, like to the point that like he's on a ship, rain's coming down. Yeah. And he's like laying on the ground riding. Yeah. Like, the dude loved riding, like about everything. So one of the things, though, that happened while he was in France. Go ahead. He went to the theater in France, sat next to Voltaire. That's right. I forgot about that. And I was like, that guy's from the 1200s. So yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly a made up. Was he Greek? I think yeah. I think Voltaire was Greek. Uh, and it shows you how little my timeline is correct in my brain. This like might be days. a good time to say, what do you remember, Blaine, from like high school, junior high, social studies, U.S. history about John Adams? Hmm. Nothing. He was signed the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the signers. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Founding father, number two. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. That's and his son. He was the first father-son duo. Yeah. One of only two. Yeah. With uh, number 41 and 43. Yeah. HWW. His son didn't own a baseball team. <laughs> it was baseball even around when John Quincy Adams was president? No. I don't think so. No. Came around a little bit later. So anyway, Benjamin Franklin is the American minister to the court of King Louis XVI in France. Adams is just basically there. France is just loving Benjamin Franklin. I mean, anywhere he goes, he's just the celebrity. He's probably the most famous American, second only maybe to Washington. But France loves him. As a matter of fact, Adams gets a note from Congress that does not even mention him, no mention of his name. So Adams is basically second fiddle, feeling adrift, lost. Franklin is getting all of this love. And so Adams basically says, well, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. And it takes him nearly a year to get back home to Braintree, which when he shows up, it's a total surprise. Mm -hmm. Like no, no one saw that he was coming home. So something too, that I really related to with him and his wife, because early in their marriage, she ended up having to go to Europe multiple times, like back to back to back, didn't get to spend a lot of time at home in between. And when he was spending time at home, he was like having to go to Philadelphia. And I was like, oh, I know what that's like. Like, that's very similar to our first five years of marriage. Uh, Jenny and I got married and then I went to Iraq for a year. I was home for eight months and then went to Afghanistan. In those eight months, I was out in the woods for four of them wow. and then came home and we were like, all right, we got, <laughs> we got a lot to work out. Should probably stop going away for a while. Yes. But I remember reading through the parts where, because he was really open about his feelings and thoughts about Abigail in his letters, something you didn't see in a few yes. of the other founding fathers in their letters to their spouses. If we had any, he was, he was like, kind of like an emo kid about it. Like swearing <laughs> his heart on his sleeve. Yeah. Like, which that's cool. Yeah. But he was absolutely an incredibly devoted father. And he didn't have to worry about telling them what to do with the slaves because he didn't own it. He didn't have any. That's so, right. He was not a slave owner. On the win side for John Adams. As far as slavery went. He went I, the I, other way. <laughs> I learned, though, that even though he thought it was, I mean, he called it an evil of colossal magnitude. He called Negro slavery that foul contagion in the human character, end quote. Though he was against slavery on moral and ethical grounds, he thought the abolitionist movement was actually dangerous and yeah. potentially very destabilizing unless it was done in a very gradual and cautious way. Correct. Yeah. Like he understood the ramifications for the country, however negative they are from yes. an ethical standpoint. Point, he understood that it would be really bad to just turn the hose off. Yeah. But also one thing I don't think people realize, maybe they do, maybe I'm just dumb. Massachusetts was the first state to abolish slavery before the United States existed, which is wild because in the civil rights era, one of the most racist Northern state, probably the most racist Northern state. But back then they were very anti-slavery. They yes. were the first ones to say it's not legal here. Pennsylvania followed them. Yep. Like pretty interesting fact. And I don't, I think that a lot of people and I could be projecting, assume that the slavery issue was a much later issue and is a civil war problem. Those seeds were sown before we yes. wrote the Declaration of Independence. Yes. And it seemed to be something that the, you know, it didn't just seem to be, it was something that the early founding fathers continued to say, listen, on paper, we're going to say this is a moral evil. Jefferson did this. Madison did this. Monroe did it. We're against this, but it's not for me to fix it. So they passed the buck down the line a little bit, knowing full well, like, listen, the country's not ready for this aspect of destabilization. So some of the countries, some of the countries. That's right. So Adams is home for only three months from France. 
During which he shows up, his friends in Braintree basically say, hey, um, so we've chosen you as a delegate to the state constitutional convention, and we're going to need you to write Massachusetts a constitution. This was pretty neat. He called it a commonwealth instead of a state, which it's still known as today. And it is the oldest functioning constitution in the world, the constitution that John Adams wrote in the three months between coming home from France and then going off again to France with John Quincy and his nine-year-old son, Charles. Also pretty heavily influenced by the Magna Carta. Yeah. Talk about like a window of time. I mean, imagine being Abigail at that point saying, hey, hon, how you been over the past year being with Ben Franklin in Paris? Yeah. Let's real quick, very quickly make another (laughs) shot. And then I'm out of here. How are we thinking about John Adams so far? I understand why people didn't like him. My opinion of him before reading this book was the opinion that's kind of given in Hamilton. I kind of make fun of him. I even have a note that like Congress always kind of treated him like the way like jocks treat nerds when they're like, whatever nerd, they need somebody to do their homework. And then they're like, actually, can you come write this thing for us? You don't want me to fail, do you? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how he was kind of treated. So you kind of feel bad for him there, but then like there are certain points of arrogance that he has that you're like, ah, come on, you're smart. Like quit doing this to yourself. Stop proving yourself. Yeah. So in November 15th, Uh, Through December 8th of 1779, John barely reaches the northwest coast of Spain as he is en route to France and chooses to avoid being marooned in Spain while the ship that he's on is getting repaired. And he says, how far away is it to Paris? And they go, it's a thousand miles. This is 1779. He goes, great. How do I get there? And they go, see that mountain range right there? It's just over there. It's just like Homeward Bound. Home is right (laughs) over the mountain, sassy. Great Homeward Bound (laughs) reference. It takes him and his two sons and their assistants two months to get to Paris. Mm -hmm. But I love that aspect of his personality where he's like, all right, let's just go cross the Pyrenees Mountain to get to where we got to go. While he didn't fight ever, he probably would have been a pretty decent soldier. So they get there. They don't, he doesn't really get along with Franklin again, who is still the darling in the French court. I love that it says that Adams woke up at 5 a.m. daily. Franklin might have gotten up by like 10 <laughs> to do his official work. Puts his kids in school really strict. Basically, it was like, I don't need you dancing. Like, it was a real footloose situation. He's like, <laughs> math, French, Greek, like history. Yeah, like you need to know your stuff. You're yeah. going to be a lawyer, right? Right. Right. That. Right. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like Harvard. You're a Harvard man. Yeah. Stop uh, looking at the river all day. Yeah. I also wonder what, because he spent so much time there, and I know we're going to get where he went after that. He was such a voluminous writer that I wonder how many of his letters were like lost to Neptune, if you will, because there were big sections of time where he was in Europe, and it took like a full two months for anything to go one way. Yeah. I wonder how many like really famous documents dissolved yeah. in the Atlantic of letters that he was writing, on. or or were sent home with someone who might have peaked and then just didn't deliver yeah, it. he was like, oh, that's embarrassing. He yeah. said he loved it. <laughs> Be a man. <laughs> We're going to flash forward a little bit to 1782. The province of Holland in the Netherlands recognizes American independence. Later in May of 1782, John Adams takes up residence in The Hague as the new minister to the Dutch Republic. This is pretty neat. He put out a flag at the first American embassy anywhere in the world. While he was there, he obtained Dutch loans to the American cause in critical hours during the revolution. Saved the revolution. Saved it. Saved it. We needed some cash. Yeah. And I love that John knew nothing about the country, didn't speak the language, didn't have any network of friends or allies there before he went. He totally took this upon himself to make it a one-man diplomatic mission. And he it's like this superhuman devotion to his cause, and nothing was going to get in his way. He also found out that one of the teachers was like not being fair to his children. And then basically try to say his kids did something wrong. Yes. Talked to his kids about it, found out that wasn't the case. And he was like, yeah, we're not going to this school anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I was a big big fan of how he stood up for his kids there. Like he was a devoted father. Like, and then even later in life when his son was president or even when he wasn't before he was president, he would write him letters constantly. Yes. I guess it would have had to have been before his president. But when he was moving up through his career, he would write him letters constantly, like just trying to give fatherly advice and things like that. Yeah. And, and all the while running a farm. Yeah. What with this other, with Chuck <laughs> ruining the family's <laughs> legacy, running around naked at Harvard. Oh, yeah. Oh, did we get to that? We I didn't no, get that. Sorry. Oh, that was in It's coming up real close. <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> Drunk Chuck over there. Yeah, I feel like he definitely was like, nah, man, call me Chuck. 
<laughs> Come on. Uh, around this time, the young United States is trying to get Great Britain to acknowledge its own independence, determine the boundaries of the, the United States, uh, trying to figure out the rights of navigation on the Mississippi River. And this was a big deal for John Adams, which I had no idea about, but he cared a lot about American fishing rights off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, Canada, for some reason. Around that time in September of 1783, Adams, Franklin, and John Jay signed their names to the Paris Peace Treaty with Great Britain, thus ending the American Revolution seven years after the fact. Now, actually, it would have been eight years since uh, Lexington Concord. He pretty much missed the whole war. I did think it was kind of fascinating going through this book after Washington getting the account of the war basically two months late. Yeah. Uh, you know, because like we we just dove into the nitty gritty of the war here. Now we get to see what it's like to hear about the war way after everything's happening, mm-hmm. but as far removed as you can be. We're going to flash forward a little bit. So Ben Franklin is succeeded in Paris in his role by Thomas Jefferson. And this begins a, a long-time friendship sometimes. On again, off again? Yeah, on again, off again. Where the Adams family is hanging out all the time. I'm sorry, I'm a dad. No, you're fine. Uh, they're hanging out all the time in Paris with Thomas Jefferson. And you caught, I didn't catch this when I was reading it, but this humored you, something Abigail brought over to Paris. A cow. A cow. She brought a cow. She <laughs> took a cow, put it on a boat. It's like, you're coming to France. Um, man, uh, that's not going to sit. <laughs> in the windows. <laughs> <laughs> she just brought a cow. Yeah. She sure did. They're farmers. She's like, I mean, what are we going to farm? When yeah, are you gonna I've, take a cow? I've raised this thing since yeah. it was a puppy. Yeah. Huh. So the whole Adams family is there. And um, at one point, Adams is super stressed out. Yeah. And Jefferson's like, just go take a bird trip. Yeah. Let's just go hang out a little bit. Yeah. The, we'll go the down the river Thames. Thames. Poorly spelled. Yeah, it looks like Thames. Yeah, it's not Thames. This is America. <laughs> this is America. Sir, this is Great Britain. <laughs> yeah. And they literally, like, just effed off into the countryside. Yeah. They're like, all right, we're out. We're out. See ya. They enjoyed gardening tips. They enjoyed, like, the view. And at one point, they get to Edge Hill, which is where the, the English Civil War happened. Yeah. And he starts talking about things that happened. And the locals are around, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he gets... His. He gets fired up. Yeah. He's like, how dare you? He's, <laughs> he said, Englishmen so soon forget the ground where liberty was fought for. Tell your neighbors and your children that this is holy ground. All England should come in pilgrimage to this hill once a year. Which logistically, I don't know. I've I've got a question in the back. Um, How are we going to do that, sir? And what's your name again? Free dentists. (laughs) (laughs) Free dentists. They'll be like, I'm meaning to go for a while. Gosh. (laughs) I love that he's like, yo, he's not even, he's not even part of that country. And he's like, all of you need to come here every year. Let there be pomp and revelry. Yeah. We just did it. I literally just signed the treaty. We just did it. Tons of fireworks. My uncle blew off his hand in the driveway. Ever heard of July 2nd? (sighs) Where are your guys' bells? You need more bells. (laughs) You ever heard of July 2nd? (laughs) Oh goodness. All right. So yeah, they grow out. They have a great time. Time of Jay and Johnny A. It's one of my favorite unknown things about history. Like, and we'll definitely talk about it in the next episode, too. What's like, that? The fact that they were like, just go hang out and listen for a while. You want to get out of here for yeah. a sec? Let's yeah. just go. Let's, it's fine. Let's just go tell some British people how they should celebrate their independence. While he's there, he finds out about Charles Chuck. Oh, man. At Harvard, which <laughs> nobody really knows exactly what happened. Yeah. But McCullough was able to, like, go through the Harvard archives and find out around that same time, like, nine students were expelled yes. for streaking, <laughs> drunkenly streaking. Through Harvard Yard. Through the quad. <laughs> bring your green hat. Bring your green hat. <laughs> the, essentially, Charles got out of being expelled for that. But yes. it was the start of a life of... He didn't live up to his father's expectations. No. The, he was no Quincy. His dad, though short, cast a long shadow. That had to be tough for him. Not super short. He wasn't Madison short. He was 5'7". He was more of a pudgy, stocky yeah. man. Yeah. April 26, 1785, Jefferson delivers a letter to Adams uh, saying, Hey, man, uh, you've been named minister to the court of St. James in London, and you need to be there in time for the king's birthday on June 4th. So on June 1st, 1785, Adams meets very briefly, but very memorably, 
with King George III mm-hmm. in London. The press say later, a couple of days later, that Adams was tongue-tied, flustered, nervous in front of his royal majesty, King George III. However, Adams wrote letters back home sharing that it was actually King George III that was tongue-tied. He had a stammer, a stutter. But it was interesting to read about the dynamic between evil King George III, that the American Revolution was fought against. I mean, this guy had a statue torn down, melted into... Uh, musket balls. Yeah. People were like, click staring down our statues. <laughs> oh no, that's now. So <laughs> that's, that's actually uh, right now. Bad. But it was a, it was a very, an interesting, like recognizing the honor, I think in one mm-hmm. another, recognizing that, listen, this was your cause. This is mine. We Even can respect that. Holy wasn't like super well received. Cause they were like, why do we need, you just broke off. Like let's chill on the ambassador thing for a while. <laughs> like that was, that was their essential feeling about the whole yeah. thing. He's 52 years old at this point. He'd been away from home for a decade, traveling thousands of miles in France, Spain, the Netherlands, and England, repeatedly crossing the English Channel, North Sea, and the Atlantic Ocean four times, traveling 29,000 miles in service to his country, more than any leading American of his time, never once refusing to go when he was called to serve. I think I like that about John Adams. Yeah, I do think that it was harder to say no back then. Because a lot of times you just found out. Like, you weren't asked, like, hey, I'm thinking about nominating you for yeah. this thing. You're like, hey, by the way, you're the new ambassador to The Hague. And you're like, so I'm going to Holland. The Hague, that's where I'm going? Yes, that's yeah. where you're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, June 17th, 1788, John Adams arrives back home in Massachusetts aboard the Lucretia after a rough 58-day transatlantic voyage. The Constitution was finally secured shortly after when the Ninth State to ratify. Do you remember the Ninth State to ratify? When the Constitution was finally the document it was now? It's two words. New Hampshire. There it is. Great job. Yeah. I remember the whole, like, Hamilton having to go down and be like, come on, Virginia. Like, we need you on this. And then right when they were like, all right, we'll do it. He's like, never mind, New Hampshire. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They're like, new what? (laughs) Who's that? He's like, what do we even need a New Hampshire for? Like, (laughs) nothing was wrong with old Hampshire. Like, Hampshire's fine. February 1789, electors unanimously choose George Washington as the first president of the United States with 69 votes, while Adams had 34. And this really hurt his pride. He was pegged for being a a vain, conceited man. But he didn't know yet. This was interesting. I did not know about this. I must have missed this during the viewing of Hamilton on Disney Plus recently. But Hamilton did some scheming behind the scenes to get electors to withhold votes from Adams to ensure that Washington was going to be the first president. Now, Adams didn't know this at the time. When he found out, he was furious with Hamilton. There, there was a cooling off there for the rest of the, the, the relationship between the two. But the system at the time was that you've got one winner and you've got one runner up. Uh, you could have two people running against each other and it was going to be, you're the president, you're the vice president. Which turned out pretty quickly to like not work out super well. Like mm-hmm. it worked out okay the right. first time. And we can get into like his, like later with his vice president and stuff. But he saw more of a duty as vice president, like, I'm here for a specific reason. The Constitution says, this is my job, so I'm going to take my job seriously. Shows up every day. He was like a real workhorse. You know, one of those guys that like sports announcers, like, he's the first one in every morning, just the last one out every night. Like, he was taking notes. He cast 31 deciding votes, which is more than any vice president in history. So if you don't know if the House and the Senate are deadlocked, it goes to the vice president to break the tie. Who's the president of the Senate. Correct. And he always was like, well, whatever the president wants, like that's my job, right? I'm going to side with the administration. So, And this is also before partisanship. Yes. Because George Washington was very anti-partisan. Adams just kind of took his role and said, okay, this is my job and I'm supposed to do my job. And this was interesting that McCullough pointed out. I like this, that he said the three years spent as a schoolmaster in Massachusetts before the Boston Massacre trial kind of primed him in a way to oversee a classroom of students in a way there in the Senate that he's sitting up there in front of them every single day. I just like that aspect of seeing how every job that he had prepared him to do the next. Uh, around this time, the country's population doubles. It was at 2 million in 1776 to 4 million in 1789, which Adams really saw as very promising. 
However, there was hardly any hard money. There was no real army or navy. The nation was mostly wilderness. So they were uh, against standing armies. Yes. And there, there was also a growing presence of American Indians west of the Appalachians that not really anyone had any clue what to do with. Adams was concerned about what was going to hold this growing country together. And two sides started to form. You said there were no parties yet. There was the Federalists. And then there was kind of this faction, a little bit of, we're just like, well, we're kind of against you. So we're just going to go by the anti-Federalists. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was the camp of Thomas Paine and others. This was interesting. 14 years after nominating Washington to be the commander-in-chief of the army, Adams is there again by his side as Washington takes the oath of office at the Federal Hall in New York City on April 30th, 1789. So, quietly, as we've covered. Yeah. Washington was not a very loud man. Right. When, he, when first, he was taking an oath. I and then the first, like, real argument after that the Congress and Senate had was like, well, what do we call this guy? Yeah. We don't know what to call this guy. And Adams starts throwing out these, like, superfluous, very long titles. Yes. To which the other members of the Senate were like, oh, okay, why don't we give you a title? Started calling him his rotundity. Adams wanted it, His Majesty the President. Yeah. And they're like, okay, his rotundity. Why don't you just go sit in your chair a little bit? Yeah, he was really out of step with the population stance on titles. He wanted it because he, he really thought that the future of the public favored somewhat of an aristocracy. He saw education and wealth and ability as currency, for lack of a better term. At this point, Adams really had very little contact with Washington as his VP. I mean, Washington had a stacked cabinet. If this was fantasy football, he got all the picks he wanted. I mean, he had Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury, Jefferson, State, Edmund Randolph from Virginia as the, the Attorney General, and Henry Knox as the Secretary of War from Massachusetts. So geopolitically, Washington really had it spread out very strategically. And then he had John Jay as the Chief Justice. And then as he was coming up for re-election was what I was talking about earlier. Because Hamilton started getting worried that Governor Clinton from New York would get in more votes than him and would replace him as a vice president. There it is. And that's where he was like, I'm, why do I need to worry? Like, here's my resume. Clearly, I'm going to be the vice president. Yeah. So, and Hamilton was like, uh, okay, I'll just, I'll take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> I know some guys. Yeah. Like, I'm from New York. These Clinton people are bad. And we'll find out a little bit more about them in future episodes. July 14th, 1789, later that summer, a mob storms the Bastille prison in Paris, setting up the French Revolution. Adam's natural response to this was just to do what he did all the time. Right, right, right. He wrote a bunch of essays for months about the evil effects of unbalanced government. This was interesting. He strongly supported the ideals of the French patriots, but he had very dire misgivings about a new single French legislative assembly. He said, hey, I've been an ardent patriot. I know what revolution is all about, but what you're doing by melting this down into one democratic mob concerned him. He didn't really know what to do with it. And this is really where the Republicans started to take form, which is now the Democrats. But that's where they started coming in being like, no, revolution's good. Yeah. Like, all revolution's good. We should support this. Plus, they helped us with ours. So clearly, we should help us with theirs. Correct. And then the Federalists were like, no, I know we just fought Britain, but like they, they have a decent thing in place. We should probably kind of model our stuff off them. Yes. And the Republicans were basically so anti-Britain that any idea the Federalists had from that point forward, they were like, no, you just love Britain. You just want another monarchy here. And so if this is your first time hearing about the Federalists and the Republicans, who would have some Federalists have been back in the day? Hamilton, Adams. Yep. And those were the big ones. I guess who's the Supreme Court Justice? John Jay? Yeah, no, the other uh, John Marshall. Marshall yeah. Marshall was a big Federalist. But then the Republicans really, after Adams took over in force, yes. and the Federalists just kind of died off. Correct. After that. Yeah, very shortly after. Yeah. So some Republicans would have been back in the day. Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, like the next three presidents. Yeah, the Madison. Virginia dynasty. Yeah. Adams was actually the only non-Virginian president out of the first five. Him and his son were the only non-Virginians of the first six, yeah. yeah the they Virginia were the only non-slave owners out of the first 15. Yeah. It's like a generation of thought and philosophy and, and values in a country that, I mean, Jefferson, well, we're not there yet, but Jefferson worked really hard to set up Madison Monroe for that. To, it, to yeah, it is torch. important to understand how important Virginia was to the country as a whole at that mm -hmm. point because of where it was located and the logistics of that's where a lot of ships came in. Yeah. That's where a lot of the money was. 
that's where a lot of production happened. Yeah. So like it was important to keep them happy because, and then we started seeing the first pieces of secession when Northern states started to get upset about Virginia's power. Right. We're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but it's all good stuff. Around this time, uh, Adams very presciently foresaw the French Revolution leading to chaos, horror, and tyranny. He wrote his cousin Samuel Adams back in Massachusetts. He said, quote, everything will be pulled down. So much seems certain, but what will be built up? Are there any principles of political architecture? Will the struggle in Europe be anything other than a change in imposters? End quote. America's strongest friend in parliament during the revolution, Edmund Burke, declared, quote, in one summer, they, the French revolutionists, have done their business. They've completely pulled down to the ground their monarchy, church, nobility, law, revenue, army, navy, commerce, arts, and manufacturers. They destroyed all balances and counterpoises which served to fix a state and give it steady direction. And then they melted down the whole into one incongruous mass of mob and democracy. End quote. So they're I mean, guillotines. Guillotines. Guillotine. Yeah. You were right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I remember earlier you were saying like, how do we pronounce, is it Thames? And I was like, I thought it was Thames. I missed an opportunity to tell you, yes, it's, it's Thames. I definitely thought it was Thames. <laughs> I knew that it wasn't Thames. Yes. Uh, the French Revolution, spoiler alert, somewhat ate its own tail. I mean, the three, uh, I forgot their names, Robespierre was one of them, but the three main proponents of the French Revolution, actually one was murdered, one was guillotined, I think one was exiled, maybe in prison, but it was like, they got out of control. Lafayette. I mean, they threw yep. him in an Austrian prison, they threw his wife in a prison, which we'll talk about in a future episode, turned into a dictatorship. Yeah. I mean, Adams was right. Yeah. Let's drink to John Adams right now. Okay. There you go. Cheers. This is a delicious Strongbow Hard Cider in honor of John Adams. September 1789, Jefferson returns to Monticello in Virginia from Paris to learn, oh, hey, I've been named Secretary of State. Great. Approving of the French Revolution and basically unconcerned about the violence there. Jefferson was like, I mean, they're chopping people's heads off. They're ripping people's hearts out and hanging people off lampposts in the streets. It's not that bad. A little bit of revolution every generation is a good idea. That was his, that's not the exact quote, but something to the effect of that. He stays at Monticello for the winter, travels to New York City via Philadelphia to visit Ben Franklin, who was around this time dying. And on April 17, 1790, Franklin dies in Philadelphia. Adams kind of had somewhat of a lukewarm reaction. He kind of got a little salty about it. He's, he somewhat lamented how history would give Franklin all this credit along with Washington. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'm sleeping with the windows closed now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good callback right there. <laughs> But I mean, already you can tell that Adams was thinking of, of his own legacy. Mm -hmm. How is posterity going to see me? being overshadowed by Ben Franklin. I mean, Ben Franklin at that point, I mean, in his defense was probably the most famous American. I mean, yeah, well, and he was like the grandpa, like whenever they were doing the congressional Congress and things like that, they were like, should we ask Ben what he thinks? And he'd Probably come and grab his bifocals and, you know, it's like, I just made these the other day. I got this guy. <laughs> Look at this hundred dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> the summer of 1790 also included a somewhat of a getting a little bit into Jefferson territory, but over the summer, this compromise of 1790, where Hamilton, Jefferson and Madison discussed the location of the new permanent capital of the U.S. and the federal assumption of state debts. This was, this was, go ahead, talk about the song in Hamilton, You Wish You Could Have Been. In the room where it And drink. Yeah. So Hamilton basically realizes that his plan for the treasury isn't going to go through unless he plays nice Correct. with the Virginians. So they go into dinner. Jefferson sets it all up favorably for him down to like the place settings and what yeah. kind of wine they're going to drink and things like that. And they come out of the room and they're like, by the way, the new capital is going to be in Virginia. And no one had any notes about, about yeah. the meeting. A flash forwarding by about three years. Okay. At this point, Adam sees Jefferson as attaining this blind spirit of party in his words and becoming a fanatic Francophile. Meanwhile, Abigail and John are filled with pity due to the ongoing chaos and bloodshed in France. So you've got the King, Louis the 16th, beheaded on January 21st, 1793, though news wouldn't reach America until after Washington's inauguration, which again is just the way that technology was back then. Very, very limited about it. Second inauguration. Second inauguration, thank you. Yes. Spain and Great Britain soon declare war on France, starting a 22-year war between France and Great Britain. Everybody was like, hey, how's the time? <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> March 4, 1793, Adams is yet again at Washington's side for his second inauguration ceremony. Even shorter than the first. Yeah, this was like record brevity. Yeah. I think it only had like two paragraphs in his, in his address. It was written by Madison. That's right. Yeah, Madison wrote the address and then the response. And then the response, the response. Yeah. 
It's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Once again, back in his home state of Massachusetts. Now Quincy. That's right. Yeah, it's been yes. named. 1793. This is an interesting side note about how the French Revolution propaganda machine was starting to make its way into American politics. Edmund Charles Gannett. I think I'm saying that uh, right. I would definitely assume it was Gannett. <laughs> the T is silent. Every time I read it in my head, I go Gannett. But I, could, I mean, it could be Gannett. I mean, there's no audio recording, so yeah. we can call him whatever we want. Let's call him Gannett. People say Washington. Washington. So we can say Gene. I have a friend who said as, who says across. Like uh, I went across the room. Uh, anyway, uh, Edmund Charles Gene. Let's call him Gene. Yeah, also I known agree. as Citizen Gene. It's an envoy from France. He arrives in Charleston, South Carolina to rouse support of the French Revolution and encourage privateering against British shipping by American sailors who start doing that. But Washington, shortly after Ganae's arrival, says, eh, we're going to be neutral in this before Ganae arrives in Philadelphia. Without using the term neutral. That's right. He doesn't use the term. It's kind of a cool move. Yeah, he was pretty smart. Uh, Jefferson is head over heels with this guy over the rekindling of the 1776 revolutionary spirit and pro-French democratic societies start popping up, verging on vigilante groups in the young republic and were bent on gaining French control over American politics. But then what he didn't realize was how popular Washington was. Correct. So his mistake was trying to get people against Washington and they were like, Whoa. Easy guy. Yeah, they like DJ Jazzy Jeff. They were like, whoa. No. Slow your roll. No, that was Joey Lawrence. Yeah, you're right. Whoa. What am I thinking? Uh, I have no idea. I was imagining him getting thrown out of the house. But he didn't say, well, you're right. <laughs> you're confusing your mid-90s TV <laughs> references. Were you trying to do the Zach Morris where he goes time out and say by the bell and everything is, stops? Oh, Maybe that's what you were doing. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's the one thing I'll get wrong this episode. So you got the French Revolution that's happening across the ocean. You've got 20 people a day dying from yellow fever in Philadelphia in the summer of 93. It's the worst epidemic to strike an American city. I mean, thousands. I think the French Revolution claimed 14,000 lives in including those who set it in motion. In May 1794, Adams heads home to Massachusetts, and his time as VP is virtually over. You said before he has the the most deciding votes, more than any other VP in history, 31. And we're coming up on his election Mm -hmm. for president. Hey, before we go any further with John Adams, let's hear from one of our fabulous sponsors. You're listening to Episode 2, The Voice of the Presequential Podcast. Have you ever opened your pantry and wondered, what am I going to do with these 32 half-used Yankee candles in here? Listen, home decorating can be hard, especially when you've got a thousand other things going on. You need the Jealous Neighbor. My sister Heather started the Jealous Neighbor to help homeowners use the furniture and decor they already have in their home, add to it on a budget, and discover the home they've always wanted. Whether you need help just sprucing up your home's entryway or you need your entire first floor redecorated, go to Facebook.com slash The Jealous Neighbor to schedule your consultation with with my sister Heather. She will guide you through an hour consultation in person or virtually, help you assess the furniture and decor you already have in your home, and give you a plan to take your home from bow to wow. Get an hour of redecorating with Heather free when you mention that you heard about the jealous neighbor on the Presequential Podcast. Go to Facebook.com slash the jealous neighbor today. Speaking of jealous neighbors, let's get back into John Adams. March 4th, 1797, Adams is sworn in as the second president in Philadelphia after having spent eight years as VP in a pretty distant role to Washington. Washington and Jefferson are also there present at the ceremony, of course, of the exchange of power, which is a really emotional and impactful scene for everybody who's there. He becomes president of a nation that is now numbered 16 states, having added Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Shout out to all our listeners in Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Although none of his family members were present at his inauguration. It's kind of a lonely day. Mm-hmm. Especially for somebody whose family is so important. Oh, absolutely. But then immediately, Jefferson starts feeding the Republicans intel. And he was essentially a backstabber. Yeah. Like anything that Adams was doing, he would be like, hey, you have a newspaper, right? Uh, <laughs> here's some stuff. Don't mention my name. Don't. And then Adams would be like, can you believe the stuff they're saying about me? And Jefferson's like, I wonder where they're getting that from. Crazy, right? Yeah, it's weird. This was this was an interesting move. There was no real, uh, nobody knew what to do with cabinet members at that point. So he just basically allowed Washington's cabinet, yeah. who, who had changed somewhat of a guard there. I said, well, you guys want to stay on? I mean, there was no tradition of a cabinet member resigning with an outgoing president. I think he saw it as a little bit of diplomacy, too, in a matter of, like, I want to show some consistency. Yes. Here. So I think it makes most sense if you guys stay on, if you're up for it. First occupant of the White House? Yes. Stayed there the first, for, I think, of the first White House. 
five months, I think. It was it was towards the end of his term. He was a single-term president. I think one of yeah. only eight single-term presidents. He was the first occupant, but there was really not much no. there. When Jefferson came in, he was like, mm, what, you, what were you guys doing? We're going to need some Mastodon bones. <laughs> we'll get to that in episode <laughs> three. Oh, my goodness. This was interesting. April 1798, Adams loved this. I mean, he saw this as one of the, the neatest things that he did in his presidency that he was the most proud of. The rebirth of a naval fleet and a new Department of Navy that was separate from the War Department. The Navy grew from practically zero ships to 50 in less than two years under Adams' watch. Also, this was interesting. His insistence on naval strength proved decisive in achieving peace with France. Mm -hmm. And had there been a war that a lot of people wanted and that would have been highly political popular for Adams at the time, um, it would have been a very short-lived positive response. Just just crack open the next cider. There it is. There's no way to do that. No, I'm sorry. Had Adams gone to war with France that a lot of people wanted him to do, there probably wouldn't have been the Louisiana Purchase later that Jefferson got a lot of credit for. So Jefferson just happened to be the guy that, you know, Monroe comes back and he's like, hey, we, we got the whole thing. Well, uh, what about Florida? Yeah, we'll, we'll figure that out. Yeah. But without Adams having a naval deterrent, a strong Navy defense, and not going to war when it would have been very, very popular, it, it could have been a completely different story. Yeah. How do you feel the like the difference between the way Adams approached the vice presidency and now he has Jefferson, who is immediately starting to usurp him? Yeah. How do you feel that difference was? Well, why don't we just ask Russ? I mean, he's our producer. He's our vice presidential expert. Yeah. I mean, I guess we do have an expert at the table. Yeah, he did read one book, after all, on Mm -hmm. the vice presidents. Uh, Russ, so how did uh, Jefferson approach the vice presidency compared to our current president, John Adams? Thomas Jefferson considered the office, in his words, beneath his dignity. Mm -hmm. The day before he was sworn in as vice president, he was actually elected president of the American Philosophical Society. Oh, the APS? The APS, founded by Benjamin Franklin. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a real big honor. That's fun. He called that the most flattering incident of my life. So vice presidency, (laughs) beneath his dignity, (laughs) the presidency of the American Philosophical Society, Mm. the most flattering incident of my life. So that kind of lets you know exactly how he felt about the vice presidential office. Gosh. Was he so not excited? Yeah, I would say not excited about the role at all. There's no jazz hands. There's no excitement there. <laughs> Good usage of jazz hands, by the way. Were you in choir in high school? Not at all. No. Okay. They actually well, have me. With your outgoing personality, that's shocking. <laughs> so anything about Jefferson as VP since yeah. since you're here? Well, as president of the Senate. One of the roles of the VP. Yeah. One it's of episode roles. two, for those of you that don't know. Yeah. You jumped in at just the right time. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because of Jefferson's kind of diplomatic history with France, John Adams had actually wanted him to serve as a diplomat to France. But Jefferson shot it down because he said, as the president of the Senate, I can't be in the legislative branch and take on executive branch duties as well. So he didn't want to be vice president or president of the Senate, yet he gave it its credence and didn't want to have the Hmm. conflict of interest between the two. Was president of the Senate the first assistant to the regional manager? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Nearly as important. (laughs) So neither too jazzed about being vice president? Yeah, I would say Thomas Jefferson was not real jazzed about being vice president. Jazz wasn't around back then. So Neither were the jazz. Oh, from Utah. Yeah, well, New Actually, Orleans. New Orleans before that. Utah, yeah. Very Mormons. Names. Mormons really known for their jazz. True. Contributions. Yeah. Well, Russ, thank you so much for this enlightening trek into the vice presidency, as you always bring every podcast episode. I was super jazzed to do it. Mm. I was enlightened. July 2nd. 1798, 21 years to the day. Clearly a big day for Adams, July 2nd. I mean, he had it set in his iPhone. Pomp and revelry. Yeah. Solemn. Fireworks. Devotion to God Almighty. And then fireworks. Sports and bells. Bells. Sports, which, what did that look like? Like, let's get the (laughs) stick out and roll the wooden wooden wheel around. (laughs) 21 years to the day of the American independence being declared. Uh, John Adams, is uh, he nominates Washington as the commander-in-chief of, at this point, the 10,000-man-strong provisional army. To everyone's surprise. And his his old feud with Hamilton. That's right. (laughs) Resurfaces. Uh, That same week, Congress created a permanent Marine Corps. As well as the, oh, this was a fun fact. Shout out to the devil dogs, man. Yeah, man. Those guys don't mess around. Once a marine, always marine. 1798. That's right. 
you, you never was a Marine. Oh, that's my favorite thing to You're do. You're always a Marine. Oh my gosh. I love telling people like when I'm around my Marine friends and yeah. like he used to be a Marine because they get so mad. <laughs> it's like, no, man, I'm always a Marine. Yeah, I'm still a Marine. I'm, I'm still like, a Marine. You're not. Like, you got a t-shirt. <laughs> we should say that Blaine is a lieutenant in the in the United States Army. Yeah, if you are just joining us, because uh, we covered that. Interesting. So, I, I'm a, a musical artist, singer-songwriter. We should mention that Ryan is we should musical. Yeah. He was in Straight No Chaser. Yes. Which, for those of you, for the uninitiated, was... Probably the reason the movie Pitch whatever, Perfect, Pitch Perfect, yeah, the, yeah. the acapella movie happened. Yeah. Ryan directly caused that movie to happen. Wow, you can borrow that DVD from your great aunt yeah. if you're uh, if you want to check that one out. Cups around. <laughs> anyway, this was cool. Uh, the uh, oldest the- continually acting professional musical organization in the country came into being under Adam's watch, the Marine Corps Band. I did not know that. I'm going to miss them when they're gone. What's that all about? When they're gone. Oh, wow. I'm going to miss them when they're gone. Just stop. Uh, there's yet another horrible yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. Philadelphia just can't win. Shake it. I mean, uh, they, just they all would have got inoculated or opened their windows at night. Yes. <laughs> it's basically a very gloomy summer for John. He's dealing with growing dissent within his own cabinet. He's got this quasi war with France. Are we at war with them? Are we not at war with them? Are we going to war with them? And then Hamilton, just all the time, ambitious Hamilton, constantly a nag at, uh, at John's energy and focus. In the fall of 1798, his beloved Abigail is sick for 11 weeks straight. He thought he was going to lose. Yeah, he really did. His son, John Quincy, entrusted his savings of about $2,000 with his younger brother, Chuck, who put it into really bad investments. So Adams is coming to the end of this. Well, and, and not to get too far out of ourselves, like Quincy saved the farm. Literally, that's probably where the phrase came from. I think it was. He, he saved the farm. He had invested some money, told Chuck to invest some money. Chuck clearly like was still partying, didn't invest it wisely. Unclear if he actually invested it, made his way all the way back, like bought some rental properties, flipped some houses, figured it out. And then when John Adams came into a lot of debt and it looked bleak for him, which was a theme Yes. For the first five presidents. Good night, guys. Yes, seriously. The first five presidents, they were land rich, cash Cash poor, like ended up having to sell their lands, but not John Adams, because when this happened to him, his son came in and said, I'll buy the farm. You're here for life. We're good. He gave him his entire life savings and had to start over. And we'll talk more about that in episode six, but it really does speak to the family atmosphere that John uh, nurtured in the sense of pride and family that he like put into yeah. his son, that his son realized the importance of keeping that farm that had been there from his grandparents. Yeah. Abigail grew up across the street. Uh, I think that they actually inherited that land as well. They so they yeah. combined the lands. And so it had to stay in the family name. And so he really saved them on that. Yeah. I mean, if Granted, you this at- was after he was president, but it's, yes. a, it's a little bit ahead of the story. If you look at the two men, Adams and Jefferson as well, I mean, stark political differences, but Adams died with a a, a net worth of approximately $100,000. Jefferson died with debts totaling $100,000. So from a fiscal perspective, the two men had very different philosophies and circumstances. This was interesting. The first man of African descent was a dinner guest the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, of an American president was under Adams' watch. December of 1798, Joseph Bunnell, a representative of Toussaint L'Ouverture, the leader of the slave rebellion on the island of San Domingo, otherwise known as Haiti, had dinner with the president. The Which first... sowed the seeds for the Louisiana Purchase. Correct. Yep. Yes. Uh, this was also the first and the last time in history that the president was running against the vice, the vice president. Things would switch there. What else do you want to talk about towards the end of his presidency? I mean, well, have- I mean, we covered the Alien Sedition Act a little bit. I mean, just to reiterate a touch, basically, I don't even really remember the alien part of it. I know it had something to do with not allowing new immigrants and it became a problem, but that that act, like it was never really enforced and then was overturned pretty quickly when Jefferson came in. The Sedition Act, like we talked about with Russ, basically said, if you're going to slander the president, on unknown terms and yes. lie, which is what they were doing. Sometimes we can find you and jail you. And he fined and jailed Jefferson's like right hand man. And so Jefferson immediately went to right. 
calendar, yeah, yeah. Tom's calendar, immediately came in and was the Aurora, correct? Yeah, that was yeah. the Republican magazine. Um, immediately came in and was like, now nah, you're good. Paid him back or paid him back for his debts. Got him out of jail. I think he wanted his debts paid back, but he wanted more than that. He wanted to be like the postmaster or something. And yeah, Ma- Madison but, was kind of the buffer and was like, Hey bro, no, yeah, like, it's not going to happen. Let's cut our losses. Here. Yeah. Why don't yeah. you go away? Yeah. Because at that point, and then calendar ended up like face down in the river. Yeah, mysteriously dying mm-hmm. months later. Yeah. Real mysterious. Yeah. There's a deadlock between Jefferson and Burr. This is a big deal. This election, Adams, he received 65 electoral votes. Jefferson and Burr both received 73. The outcome is decided in the House after, do you remember how many ballots it took? 12? 36. I was close. Yeah. I was just, uh, you were a third of the way there. Yeah. It was a uh, quick math. Jefferson became the third president and Burr became his VP. If you've heard the term midnight appointments, uh, that happened because of John Adams with the passing of the Federalist Back Judiciary Act of 1801 that gave him authority to appoint more federal judges. Adams spent his final days in office filling the new spots with Federalist judges. This became known as midnight appointments. Jefferson, though, when he becomes president, he basically dismisses a lot of them. He says, mm, I know what Adams Understood, but you're and that's still something to this day that gets fought, depending on who's in office. The one side will say, we can go all the way back to Adams to show that this yeah. is okay, that while well, I'm a lame duck, I can appoint Supreme Correct. Court justices. While the other side will say, no, you need to be respectful and understand that you're on the way out and let the next guy pick. Yes. And both sides do it like it's still a thing that gets argued because we saw it as President Obama was leaving. Yep. You know, we have the potential of seeing it happen again. And I'm sure that it'll this yes. be a recur. It's already happened for 200 plus years. So yep. it's not going to go away. The French sell us Louisiana in 1803. Uh, suddenly the size of the nation is doubled. And were it not for Adams making peace with France, there might not have been a Louisiana purchase. Jefferson gets a lot of the credit, but Adams kind of teed him up to mm-hmm. succeed. October 28th, 1818. Abigail dies of typhoid fever. 54 years of marriage to Adams. Adams would live the final eight years of his life without her. In this kind of sunset of his life, he was really, really proud of what John Quincy was doing as Secretary of State under Jefferson. Under Monroe. What did I say? Under Jefferson. Jefferson. I'm sorry about that. He also kept up a lively pen pal relationship with his old buddy Jefferson. Yeah. After they were both non-presidents, they became friends again. Yes. They kind of put aside their differences. Now, there were times Adams wrote Jefferson a lot more. And there were times where there would be like like 12 letters. And Jefferson would be like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. Okay, I'll respond to this. Yes. And then... It all came down to July 4th. I I got chills when I read this. I think I knew that they died on the same day, but I didn't know the circumstances surrounding both. Uh, Jefferson passed away first, uh, hearing the hours. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing the bells of Charlottesville in the valley below Monticello, surrounded by his loved ones. And it, he held out. I mean, Jefferson. I think he knew. He was like, I got to hold on for a yeah. little longer. And Adams was a little bit more abrupt. Yes. I think that there was like a contingency party that, that came to Adams to try to get a toast for the 50th anniversary of the revolution. And they're like, what do you want us to say from old John Adams? And I love that all he gave them was the words independence forever. Yeah. And they're they're like, do you want to say anything else? And he's like, no, that's enough. Yeah. That's it. I I hope those are my last words. His last words, uh, Thomas Jefferson survives. A thunderclap shakes the house when he dies. The rain stops there in Quincy, Massachusetts. And the last son of the day breaks through the dark clouds at the moment of his passing. And John Quincy Adams in his diary that night writes of his father's passing that on the 4th of July of all days was a visible and palpable manifestation of divine favor. And everyone in the country began to, as news spread, like, wait a second, these two last guys from this era pass away within hours of each other on the same day on the 50th anniversary of our nation's independence. And then future presidents were like, I got to die on July 4th. That's right. Well, what did Monroe die on? Monroe died on the 3rd. Sorry. Madison died on the 3rd. Monroe died on the 4th. I also like this, I think, as we're coming to the close here, that Jefferson composed his own epitaph, designed his own tombstone, Monticello, yeah. had it down to... But the- Adams is the one that has a problem with vanity. Right. Adams composed an inscription to be carved into somewhat of this family sarcophagus that Henry Adams, this ancestor of his that in 1638 came over, he, he wanted it inscribed to say nothing of his own achievements, but he basically saw himself in this long line uh, continuum, McCullough says. 
of Adam's men who loved their country and served it well. I think, wasn't he the only president that wasn't buried by himself? Uh, I don't know. I could be wrong about that, but I think he's buried with family in the sarcophagus and he's the only one that isn't, that doesn't have his own private plot. Once again, I could be mixing him up with someone else. Yeah. We should say we're not historians. No, we read a book. (laughs) We just love history. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, we always enjoy having a nice libation with one another talking about nerdy things. Follow-up question. So, legacy of Adams. Mm-hmm. Adams is one of the tough ones because, like you said, yeah, not very many people. They know second president. They know his son was president. They know right. the guy from Sideways played in uh, uh, HBO documentary. Um, or <laughs> documentary. <laughs> yes. Um, gosh, what's his name? What's his name? Paul oh, Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Paul Giamatti. Yeah. yeah. It's a great miniseries if you've seen it, by the way. I actually almost watched it this weekend in preparation. It's good. And like you said... Louisiana purchase probably doesn't happen if it's not for him. It's probably taken by force. Yeah, because Bonaparte was strapped for cash. And he was like, listen, let's just get rid of this. Just sell it off. Yeah, Uh which let's save We'll save that. Unfortunately, I do think that the Hamilton play gives his legacy in a negative light because they didn't get along. And it's supposed to shine Hamilton in such a good light. Like, There's the part of the play where King George like kind of laughs off that John Adams is going to be president. But we know... That they actually met. Yeah. And it was a relatively cordial meeting. Yes. We also know that when they met, like that was probably at the beginning of King George's mental illness. Yeah. Starting to kick in because he had some pretty serious issues late in his life. But I think from a legacy standpoint, for me personally, he's a really good person to study from a history standpoint as a father and as Mm. a husband. Like that was the big thing I took away from it was like, I'm sorry, you talked about the parallels to his marriage at the beginning and my marriage at the beginning of having to be gone at service of your country in a different country and, you know, having children at the time, but he was just such a devoted father and and husband. And you can see that in his letters could see that in the way that Quincy kind of carried the torch for him. Yeah. He could have handled the Charles thing better. He ended up, um, we didn't talk about this, but he ended up disowning Charles just too many. I mean, Charles ended up being a raging alcoholic and basically killed himself through drinking. Yeah. So maybe some compassion could have been in order there, but it was a different time. So what's your legacy? I didn't know a lot about Adams coming into this. I really enjoyed this book and I really enjoyed doing a little bit of other research about John Adams. It would have been interesting to see if he served a second term, how history would have seen him. I did hear on another podcast that there's a group of Adams descendants who are still pushing for an Adams memorial or monument in DC for everything that he did. It just hasn't come to fruition. I think I like him. I think it's, it's easy to say, well, I wish he wouldn't have done the alien and sedition acts and I wish he would have pushed for more abolition. And, but all in all, I think he was an ardent patriot, which resonates with me. I think it was a strong family man. There wasn't really a ton of scandal in his presidency. I mean, looking back, he had a pretty strong record to when you're, when you're following George Washington, if you were a listener and you've got someone in your family in the, the Navy or the Marine Corps, that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, Adam's thumbprint is all over that. So I like that coming from a military family myself. Bringing it back to the Hoosier side of things, yeah, like, it's got to be really similar to Mike Davis. Yeah, he had to right. follow Bob Knight. Yes, like trying to follow George Washington. I mean, Bob Knight was nicknamed the General. Probably pretty similar. Like people weren't going to give you much of a chance. That's You've got to really go above and beyond. Yeah, and Adams took him to the NCAA championship game yeah. and then got blown out by Maryland. <laughs> So that's right. We're in Indianapolis, by the way. We're native Hoosiers. <laughs> we should say that. Listen, hey guys, if you have enjoyed the Presequential Podcast, we want you to subscribe, leave a review. That really does help it get into the other ears of lovers of history, especially around the presidents. We're going to be doing this one through forty-five. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation. And if you want to read the book, we're going to put the link where you can get David McCullough's amazing biography on John Adams in the show notes. This is the Presequential Podcast. We'll see you next time. For number three. Yeah. See you in two weeks. Enjoy a breakfast cider for us.